Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon here. We've been going through a series called The Powerful and the Powerless. We've only done two so far, but I would say, hopefully, every single one of these is, is reflecting on different ways in Scripture we see God frequently saying, I am with the powerless, and we frequently see God opposing the powerful, especially the powerful who are using their power to, to hurt other people. And in my opinion, if I had to pick one verse to be the center of this whole thing, it would, it would be that first sermon that I preached on the Christ hymn, the idea of Christ being in power with God, but deciding to empty himself, taking on the form of a person, and not just that, he emptied himself even further, dying on the cross, but through that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And so let's remember that as we continue on in this series. I want to ask you an opening question. What, do you remember what your very first job was? Not your very first chore, but your very first thing that you got paid to do. And I want you to think about it. Some of you, did anybody have a paper route in here? Anybody? Okay, we got some paper routes. Uh, does anybody remember their first job being mowing people's yards? Anybody? Okay, yes, all right. Um, some of you, I want you to think, no matter what your first job was, I want you to think about how qualified you were for that first job, okay? Some of you, it might have been, uh, I know a common thing when I was in high school was people were lifeguards as their first high school job. You kind of had to get a certificate before you could do that. But I can guarantee you, if some drowning was happening, I bet you that high school junior would not say they, they still didn't feel super qualified for that job, right? Okay, but all of us at some level, great or small, in my opinion, felt incredibly unqualified for the task. I, I know for me, uh, my first jobs all were working for my grandfather on his land in Salado. And I also remember, uh, I remember vividly how I would maybe do some other, as I got older, I would do other jobs for other people, and they would pay me pretty well. And my granddad would barely pay me, but he thought he was giving me tons of money. I remember one time I mowed for him for like four hours, just sat out there and mowed, and he was like, guess what? You really worked hard today. And he gave me like a $10 bill. And I was like, thanks, Papa. This is great. Um, but to him, he was like, that, that's a lot of money, you know, for a young guy. Anyway, I remember my very first job working for my Papa was he had a tractor that had a 500-gallon water tank attached to it that you would have to drive. And you would, I, here's what I vividly remember. He had all these trees out there that he was watering. You'd have to drive the tractor up to a tree, park it, get out, put the water hose by the tree, turn it on, stand there for about 90 seconds, turn off the water hose, get back on the tractor, drive 15 yards to the next tree, park, get out, water the tree. But what I remember is that this tractor was a standard, and I didn't know how to drive standard. And so you'd see me out there. How many of you remember driving a standard for the first time? You know, whenever you're not quite getting it and it's just like bucking, you know? And I, I just vividly remember having many moments where I, I easily could have been thrown from this thing, mostly because I'm just trying to figure out how to drive this standard. And, and I credit learning how to drive standard to this, this tractor. But all of us can think of times where we were thrown into a job or we were given a job and, you know, we had some qualifications for it, but in many ways we could list all the ways we probably weren't quite qualified for that job. Now I want you to think about what qualifies someone to be a preacher? Okay? 
Now, we have some church traditions where they have a pretty big uh, list of things that are official. You have to have this level of schooling or this level of seminary degree. And then we have other traditions. I actually think our tradition is one that's kind of pretty uh, low standards as far as, you know what? If you, if you believe in Jesus, you could get up there and preach a message, right? You know, you've, you've been in those settings before where we're kind of like, you know what? We're a priesthood of all believers. Go ahead, get up there, speak, let God speak through you, right? But we also have some unwritten qualifications for our preachers, right? What are some of those unwritten qualifications? You could say, you know, we would really like our preacher to have a family. We want them to be married with kids, right? That's often a thing that are talked about in preacher committees. Has this church ever done a preacher search? No, I'm just kidding. But you know, you know what I mean? You have, you have those conversations. You also maybe, you maybe have the conversation of, we would like this person to have a bachelor's degree, or we would like for them to at least, some churches might say we'd like for them to have a master's degree. Some places would say, you know, we really want this person to have preaching experience. Not this church. But some churches would say, we want this person to have some experience in the pulpit. We don't want just some new guy. We want somebody that's had some time. We want somebody that's, you know, young enough to reach our young audience and old enough to actually relate to our current audience. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? I don't want some kid talking to me about marriage. What do they know about marriage? What do they know about, you know, having a family and life difficulties? And then we also have... You know, one that some churches would say is, we kind of want this person to be a certain level of attractive. We want, if you put a picture of them and their family and their kids on a billboard, it would say, I want to go to that church, right? You with me? You've heard all of these unwritten rules have a certain level of, of you know, they're, you know, I could see them on a billboard. Okay. One of the common preacher jokes, and one thing that is something I often laugh about, is the fact that one of the greatest heroes that we have in the Bible, Paul, would have been one of the last people that any modern church would have actually considered hiring. Let's go through the list. He murdered people. Can you imagine that in the interview? Pro well, he didn't. Maybe he didn't throw a rock, but he was there and he was facilitating the murder of Christians. Can you imagine if I came and interviewed and they're like, "Is there anything we need to know?" And I said, "Well, you know, I I have killed some people in the past." That might be a that might be kind of a, a deal breaker for a lot of us. Uh, another thing is Paul was single and had no kids. For a lot of people, it's like, yeah, but we want someone with a family, you know? We want a preacher's wife who can, you know, come to our ladies' classes and different things. That, that's, Paul didn't have that. And the thing that I would say, even if you just took those things away, one of the number one things about Paul that many churches would have struggled with is Paul frequently in his messages found a way to say, I am really pretty weak and I'm pretty broken. He found many ways of highlighting that. And in a lot of our churches... The person we want speaking is the one that we want to be the exemplar of no problems. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? We don't want to know our preacher has some struggles in their marriage. We don't want to know that our preacher has a hard time with their kids and not losing their temper with their kids. We don't want to know that. We want our preacher to be somebody that we can all look up to and go, that's my preacher. He does it all just right. Okay, you with me? All right, so I'm going to jump around a little bit in 2 Corinthians, but we're going to see 2 Corinthians is a letter where throughout the entire letter, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. We actually know that this is his fourth letter that he wrote. We had a, he wrote one letter, and then he wrote another letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, and then he wrote a third letter, and then he wrote this fourth letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first and the third ones. 
I probably didn't need to mention that, but that's because I'm a Bible nerd. I really wanted to share that with you. And so in this letter, though, he is receiving a lot of criticism from the church in Corinth because there are things that they're hearing about what, fall, about what Paul is experiencing, and they're starting to wonder, is this guy really the apostle that we want? Is he really qualified for this? It's evident when we read his letters to the church and whenever we study things in, in ancient history that the church in Corinth was known as a place that really valued social elitism, okay? I don't know what the contemporary American example would be, but I think Washington, D.C. is probably a close example. Depending on what circles you run in at Washington, D.C., the level of your status at whatever office is maybe more important than some places where the more elite you are, the better. And you need to find ways to demonstrate that through your home, through your car, all that. I would argue that different parts of Dallas probably is very much about social elitism. And I'm not trying to call those places out. I'm saying it's a reality. You probably go to the Highland Park area. You probably, I don't know, there's parts of New York, I'm positive. There's parts of Los Angeles, I'm fairly certain, have a certain level of your value in this community is about how socially elite you are. And you can see this in the letters of Corinth. For example, remember that famous passage where Paul says, you know, if, if you can do all these amazing spiritual gifts, but you don't have love, you're kind of just a resounding noise. It's because they were taking all this pride in how they were so spiritually elite. We can speak in tongues. And he's saying, you know, that's all pretty pointless if you can't just do love right, okay? So we can see throughout the letters that social and spiritual elitism is a big problem there. And the Corinthians, they were kind of wanting proof that Paul was actually someone who was a worthy apostle, someone that had some power and some prowess, and someone, you know, do we actually want you to be our preacher? Do we want you to be our apostle? In 2 Corinthians 13, 3, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'll just mention it to you. In 2 Corinthians 13, 3, he says, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. So you can tell he's writing that because he knows. They're kind of like, can you give us some proof that you're actually like someone Jesus is using? This is the kind of pressure that Paul is under. So here are some verses where Paul is going to say, the problem he faced is, is that I... Me, Paul, I don't embody all these marks of power and of elitism and impressiveness that the Corinthians value. I don't embody all these things that they're like, you know, a really good apostle or a really good speaker should have this, 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 and this. And Paul is basically saying, I don't have those things that you're expecting. In some ways, he was actually the opposite. So in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, it's the first passage up there, and then 11, 6, the, the one below it. For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's pretty unimpressive, and he speaks, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Can you imagine if one of my references that you had called had been like, you know, Drew can write a pretty good email, but when he actually, like, talks, he's not really, he's kind of meh, and uh, everything he says is kind of, like, just empty. Let's hire that guy. In, in 11.6, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. So he admits, he says, I'm not really some trained professional order. And back then, if you were going to speak, you needed to be one of these really impressive, really impressive speakers. So let's go ahead and we're going to get to the section that's the bulk of our reading. If you turn in 2 Corinthians 11, 21, we're going to start in the second half of 21 through 29. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, 
I am speaking as a fool. I think this is Paul's way of saying, like, who am I kidding? Of course, all of us find ways to boast about things. You know, who, who am I kidding? Of course, you know, whatever we boast about. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He's saying, these people, they like to brag about these different qualifications, the different things. And, you know, if I could too. I've got all those things. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Now, what I want you to hear is we as modern day Christians, we hear all that and we think, wow, Paul is really impressive. The people reading this letter would have thought, this guy must not be a really good apostle because to them, constantly going through these trials means that God isn't with you. Does that make sense? It would be like, for example, if I had all sorts of bad things happen in my life and people say, well, God must be really angry with Drew. That's why all those things are happening. So even though we read this and we want to like give Paul a round of applause, like look at what Paul is doing for God and for Christ. It would be like if someone said, I am a missionary in South Sudan and I'm constantly facing persecution. We would praise them. But for Paul, he knows that the Corinthians, they hear all these things and they think there is no way that God is actually using this guy as an apostle. Do you hear all the things that he's going through? God must clearly be against him. Okay? You got to remember that. Where did I leave off? Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Every Corinthian reading this letter is like, See, this is what I'm talking about. We've got to get a different apostle. We've got to get a different preacher. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? He's just saying over and over, all that y'all think about me not being qualified, you're absolutely right. Everything you hear me saying, you see as a sign of weakness. You see as a sign of my unfitness to be an apostle. And you're absolutely right. The Corinthians wanted an all-star preacher, an all-star prophet that had an apostle, that had all of their life, everything was going smooth, everything was great. They wanted him to write in a letter that said, everywhere I go, people just like praise me. Everywhere I go, people just throw money at me. Everywhere I go, they're like, please come and speak at our place. Here, we, we want you so bad. That's what they want to hear in this letter. They don't want an apostle of brokenness and weakness and pain because to them that looks like a problem that looks like God isn't with them rather than meeting the Corinthians expectations Paul shines a light on the very weaknesses that have caused him criticism putting his weaknesses front and center and then in 1130 the next part and 31 if I must boast I will boast of the things that show my weakness the God and Father of the Lord Jesus who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. And then in 12, 7 through 10, or because of these surpassingly great revelations, 
Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Many people debate what exactly this is, and we don't have to worry about it. The bottom line is Paul is aware. He has a weakness, something physical, something emotional, spiritual, we don't know. But it's constantly hurting him. It's constantly making him feel like he isn't strong enough. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In a culture of boasting of personal accomplishments and success, I'm sure some of us have been in those arenas before. I still remember the first time I went to ACU and I had to be in the Honors College because of one of my scholarships. I still remember the number one way people in the Honors College bragged was talking about how many hours and classes they were taking. Oh, you should see how much homework I have. Oh, my, my orchestra homework and my biology sophomore biology homework. You know, you've been in those circles before where the way you brag about yourself is all those accomplishments you have, all those things that show you're so successful. But Paul's response was to boast in his weaknesses. Paul did not anchor his life as a follower of Jesus in his ability, in his talent, in his gifting, in his resume, or his strength, but in the grace of God alone. When we emphasize our strength, here's a, uh, for you journalers out there, when we emphasize our strength, the cross is made weak. When we emphasize our weakness, the power of the cross is revealed. The thing that Paul sees over and over again, and we see throughout his letters, like even I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians at the beginning, over and over he's saying, listen, some of you think that the way to have a really great gospel message is by being the best speaker ever, and by having all this talent and all this amazingness. And he says, you know what? I want to diminish that as little as possible so that the only thing that you see that is strong is the cross of Jesus Christ. When we emphasize our weakness, we leave room for the power of the cross to be revealed. Our world values super people. And we have this message that says, no one's really going to listen to what I say unless I'm some specially awesome person. I've got to be really incredible for me to deserve for my voice to be heard. But that's not actually the case. We often act like only certain people are allowed to be the ones that God wants to proclaim our gospel. And we think only those people that have got it all together, only those people that we really want to promote, we want to put up on a billboard, a billboard, a billboard, those are the people that we want to say, listen to them. Yet the message throughout scripture is no, 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 no. Every single one of us is insufficient. Every single one of us is unqualified, is broken, has problems, has so many things. And God says, actually, y'all are the ones that I most want to speak through. Because guess what? When they hear your story, uh, a friend of mine, Chris and Stacy Hatchett, they often talk about the fact that they went through a lot of marital problems. So much so that he was embarrassed that he had to leave his ministry job and walk across the street to a family marriage counseling business. And I'm the minister. I'm not supposed to be the one that's got to go to marital counseling. But guess what? Now him and his wife, after going through that together, they're the ones that go and do marriage conferences all over the place. If, you, if they hadn't have been through that, they couldn't have spoken in that weakness. Does that make sense? 
Their ability to share and help others in the name of God is not possible without this weakness that they had when they were younger. We all have weaknesses. One of the members of our church shared about how one of their children passed away from alcohol abuse. And in a text that she sent to me, she said, I often struggle with this, but I know that I have an ability to share and help others who are in a similar situation because I went through what I went through. Are you with me? Okay. This is what it looks like when we say, my weakness doesn't disqualify me from being able to share the cross. If anything, it makes the cross power shine even more. So where I want to end is I want to end with this question. How do we boast in our weaknesses, like Paul says? And what I want you to do is I want you to just go home and I want you to chew on what this looks like. I want you to think about what does it look like to boast in our weakness? But I thought that was a little unfair because I do think this is a really tricky question. So I want to, I want to list out four things to you that I thought of, of what it looks like to boast in our weakness. Ideally, you come up with your own four because I don't think there's some great answer to this. But here are some four things that I think you can think about in your life that will help you boast in our weakness in a culture that boasts in our strengths. One, actually admit you have flaws. That may sound harder than it is, uh, but many of us really have a hard time identifying some of our own weak spots. Our spouses don't, but we do. We have a hard time admitting, you know, I can be kind of angry sometimes. I can overstress sometimes. I can have a spending problem. I can have a time where maybe I, I do, I'm a little more likely to, to need a drink to relax than I wish I admitted. I, no, I'm not dependent on it. Well, you know, I do kind of need three or four glasses in order to feel able to relax. Start having those conversations about some of our weaknesses. Number two, uh, this is uh, something I thought of. Any good coach, whenever they win a game and they get up on the podium and they say, now coach, tell us what you did to win that game. What are they, a good coach is going to say, my players played incredible and my coaches did a great job getting them ready. They take none of the credit. Now, most coaches do that partially because it's a PR thing. You know, it looks good in the newspaper. But I do believe that there are truly people out there that whenever something successful happens, their first statement is to say, I really don't think I deserve the credit you're giving me. You really need to give this credit to everyone else because they're the ones that made this happen. This is what we get a chance to do every single day. When your kid does a great job in high school and graduates with honors, don't pat yourself on the back. Look around and say, man, I'm proud of my kid and I'm so thankful for this community that helped me. These teachers, these teachers are incredible. How often does that happen? If, you're, if, you, if your kid passes a test, you say, yeah, that's my kid. If your kid fails a test, you say, that teacher is a bad teacher. You with me? Let's turn that around some more. Let's start giving credit to people when good things happen and saying, I really don't think I deserve very much credit. Number three. Don't let a weakness keep you from doing something for Christ. This is the thing I was emphasizing quite a bit earlier. When you feel like you have a weakness or a disqualification, don't run away, run towards it. Trust and believe that that might be exactly the place where God says, trust me, I can do incredible things through that. And then fourth and last thing. In all that we do, we want the final word to be, look at how great our God is. If we are too front and center with our impressiveness, we risk the final word being, you are awesome. Does that make sense? Always find ways to position yourself in, in everything you do so that at the end of the day, whenever something finishes, 
you can say, our God is a great God, not, wow, Drew's really awesome. All right? So if any of you would like to learn more about what this looks like, this upside-down kingdom that we have of a Savior who says, actually, the world's going to pow- take power and say that power is the thing that wins the day. But you won't believe just how much in our weaknesses, that's the place where I am going to be able to truly show my power, the one that's the power of love that's greater than any of these worldly powers. Our elders are going to be standing at the doors. If any of you would like to pray about anything, maybe you want to pray about a weakness that you feel like you thought of during this sermon. And if any of you have something that's pricked your heart to where you've said, I want to take my relationship to another step, there's going to be all of us will be eager to talk with you. I'll be standing here eager to talk with you. And let's have that conversation. Let's not let that feeling we have just be something that ends in this room, but it carries out to the rest of our life while we stand and while we sing this song.